1: A nonprofit organization working with everyday superheroes like you to rescue orphans and widows from abuse, trafficking, or worse, for the past 19 years. To learn more about how you can save a life, visit kinshipunited.org today. Today is
2: Wednesday, March 13th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, we are talking about Venezuela. Today is Wednesday, March 13th, and you are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I am joined by our editor-in-chief, Mark Alley. Good afternoon. Hello, Mark. It is great to have you here.
0: Yes, I was away at Grand Rapids where winter is still happening.
2: Mark, whenever you tell me about Grand Rapids, I just always think about the time that you showed up an hour late to your appointment. That is like (laughs) the Grand Rapids Mark story.
0: Exactly. But my hosts at Erdman's Publishing House were so gracious they didn't even mention it. They didn't blink. And it wasn't until the next day I figured out that I'd lost an hour. <laughs> <laughs> they're the most Christian people, those, those editors at Erdman's.
2: All right. But let's not also not like, that probably happens to them a lot.
0: Don't you think? Well, still, the fact that they're not irritated about it.
2: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So, Mark, we are talking about Venezuela today, and who is our guest to talk about
0: this. Our guest is Herman Novelli, Jr. He is the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And you're wondering why we would invite him? Well, he was born and raised in Venezuela and came to the United States only seven years ago when he began to serve as pastor of Grace Church. So he's uh, not a little familiar with what's going on there.
1: Hi, Edmond. How are you? Hi, Morgan. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me today here.
2: We are really glad to have you today.
0: Anytime we can have an ESPN sports reporter, former <laughs> Morgan is just thrilled.
2: It's all part of my covert plan. I mean, people think we're talking about the political crisis, but actually we're going to talk about all the
1: baseball players from Venezuela. Well, we could. We could do that, too.
2: I know. And people, I think people might listen, but we won't give them and that. Se-
0: all seven of them. Yeah,
1: All
2: seven of them. <laughs> actually, when I sent Edman an email, I mentioned the fact that the Giants have a player who is known sometimes as the Panda, who is very famous and beloved by the Giants. His name is Pablo Sandoval. Um, and they actually sell panda hats that you can wear at the ballpark. I'm not kidding. Okay. (laughs) So that he's probably the most wow, probably not the most famous, but definitely one of the most beloved. And a good guy too. Yeah, I think he is. I think he's matured a little bit. It's been nice to see him grow up. All right, well, let's get into our discussion today. Venezuela, as many of our listeners I'm sure already know, has been in crisis for years, but the situation there has arguably taken an even greater turn for the worse in recent weeks. Several days ago, a blackout hit nearly every one of Venezuela's 23 states. Citizens have also been victim to frequent water shortages and a currency that is losing its value at an unprecedented rate. At the same time, more than 3 million people have left the country of 31 million people, so roughly about 10 percent of the population. The successor to former leader Hugo Chavez, Nicolás Maduro, has been largely been blamed for this collapse. Since January, many governments, including the United States, have claimed that the Maduro government is illegitimate and instead have recognized Juan Guaido, the head of Venezuela's National Assembly, as the temporary president of the country. The country is overwhelmingly Roman Catholic, although, like much of Latin America, has experienced the growing influence of Protestantism. And according to Pew Research Center's 2014 numbers, Protestants currently make up 17% of the population. So this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to learn to what extent the evangelical population is involved in the current political situation and also how it is being affected by it itself. So, Mark, I would just love to hear your gut check to everything that's going on in Venezuela right now.
0: Well, I've only paid attention to it spottingly. But it just uh, feels like deja vu all over again. Uh, unfortunately, in my lifetime, many a Latin American country has experienced social and political turmoil to the point that it's, unless one is an expert in that region, it's hard. They all conflate together after a while. And it does make me feel sad for just how much turmoil, social and political turmoil, the, the, both Latin and South America have had to experience in the last 50 years or so. Yeah. You know?
2: Similarly, I have also been kind of following this in and out. It's been interesting, I guess, that it's been in the news again. I pretty much, and I say the news, I mean the American news, right? And that's part of because the Trump administration has been a little bit more loud, for lack of a better word, about what's happening over there and kind of at times, I don't know if threatened is the right word, but suggested that they might militarily involve themselves in what's happening. And so I To that extent, it's more in our news coverage, again, because our government is talking about what's happening. But it seems like this crisis has been going on for a really long time, and it's hard to know kind of what rock bottom looks like. I feel the same way about crises like Syria as well,
0: right? um, right.
2: where they just kind of happen.
0: And I hate to put in a self-plug, but as a journalist, I really appreciate shows like this one. Which I can take something I only have a smattering of understanding about and get a, get a better understanding, whether it's done audibly through a podcast mm-hmm. or a nice brief news story summary. I think it's very helpful.
2: The only thing I will say about Venezuela, which is, is that I feel like there's been a couple of times in the past couple of years where it's touched me a little bit more closely. One of them was just one of my friends who came here to play baseball professionally. He did play baseball professionally, not in the major leagues, but um, in the minors. and. Um, I texted with him a couple days ago before we recorded the show and just asked him what was going on with his family and how he was doing. And his dad is still in the country. I mentioned, oh, I heard that there were blackouts recently. He said, yes, that my family was affected by those. So that's a little bit different when you have that connection. And then when I was in Orlando last year, my Lyft driver, I kind of ignored him for most of the trip. And then at the end of the trip, I started chatting with him and was speaking to him in Spanish, and he told me, essentially, that he was a political dissident who had protested against Maduro and then had to flee the country.
0: So that that
2: was really fascinating. He had actually been, like, kidnapped multiple times. Oh, my gosh. Had some really just crazy stories. All right, Herman, we are just really glad, as Mark and I both suggested, that we can get some of this, like, bigger picture information about what is going on. I know we have some questions on here about... The religious population and what's going on with Protestants and Evangelicos. But I actually kind of want to know if you want to fill in any of the blanks in terms of what is actually happening politically right now in the situation, especially for listeners who haven't kind of kept up with everything.
1: Yeah, when we start talking about Venezuela, Morgan, we would like to say that this is something that has been happening the last few weeks or the last few months. But the reality is that these crises, political, financially, social crises, Have been uh, has been affecting the country and the population during the last few years. And in the news, we can we can talk about the lack of food and medication. But to be honest, there are no words to describe the situation happening in Venezuela. The last few days has been crazy. They have not electric power in the whole country. Just can imagine an entire country without electricity, without electric power, no clean water. So I have been trying to reach, you know, to have connection with my family. But of course, because there is not electric power, there is not internet, communications are uh, very difficult with them. And what we have heard, because we got some messages from there, is that, you know, The food they had in the refrigerator, uh, it's totally rotten. And now uh, they have losing money because, you know, it's hard to find food in a country like that. So, yes, unfortunately, it is a nightmare. It's a tragedy what's happening there. And this has been that way for at least the last five years. Wow.
2: So you came here in 2012 what, what was the state that you would say the country was in when you arrived in the United States?
1: You know, you, you can still feel that the situation was getting worse and worse and worse every day, even though uh, seven years ago when I was living in Venezuela. Since then, I have been visiting in Venezuela almost every year. And it is amazing how you can go back this year and then you go the next and you can find uh, a totally different country and it is even worse every single year now in 2013 when former president chavez die the economical situation and reality of the country start getting into a mess uh, in a fast way part of that is that you know we are talking about a a, a country where oil is the main resource. So when the prices of oil came down, uh, you can start feeling the economical situation and more often everywhere. Until that point that in my last visit in 2017, uh, when I was walking around the streets of my country, you know, in every single corner, you can find people uh, eating from the The garbage just because they have no money to eat. And that that really breaks your heart. And you see, well, this is happening just in, in, in that person that I don't know. But then in the last two years, I have been listening story about people I know, people who were professionals, people who had jobs that they are looking for food in the garbage because they have no way to provide for their families.
2: Wow. Well, thank you for painting a picture of of what it looks like right now in Venezuela. As we try to connect it to some of the themes that we talk about in our show, I want to talk about um, the growth of the Protestant church in Venezuela and when that began to emerge in your country's history.
1: Yeah, well, one one of the things that I like the most about, you know, about faith and church is actually its history. Um, Venezuela, remember, that was a Spanish colony for 300 years. So obviously, we had a very uh, Roman Catholic influence that has remained even to our time. Right now, uh, the majority of the Venezuelan population, about 70 percent, maybe less, says that they are Roman Catholic. However, this number, which 20 years ago was close to 90 percent, has been decreasing throughout the years. And what we have seen is that the number of Christian evangelical and Protestant churches has been increasing. At this point, there is at least one Christian evangelical congregation in every single town of my country. And the history of Christian churches uh, in Venezuela, of course, is related to the growing growing of oil companies in the country. In early 20th century, American companies began their work in Venezuelan territory and many of the American workers and oil businessmen who were coming to work in these companies were Protestant and evangelicals. So they came to work, but also they saw that Venezuela was an extraordinary mission field. By 1950, there were many churches uh, offering worship services in English, uh, German, and of course Spanish in, in cities and towns of the country. And I will say that mostly South Baptist, Lutheran Church also came by that time, and other Christian denominations. Since then, the Protestant churches have been growing fast, especially in the in the last 50 years.
2: Wow. I had no idea that there was a link between the oil business and the church growth there. That's fascinating to me.
1: And also, there is a link between oil companies and our deep love for baseball,
2: Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can have a one minute to, to say, just give me like the, you know, the preview of that. Separate podcast, but I do want to know really quickly, what is the link between them?
1: We had a lot of Americans coming to Venezuela uh, very early in the 20th century, so they brought baseball with them. Is a very important winter league uh, in Venezuela, organized with you know a lot of baseball players that you can see in the Giants, like uh, Pablo Sandoval and other players that you, they go and play in the winter league in Venezuela too, because you know that's our hobby in Venezuela, baseball.
2: Absolutely. All right. Well, separate podcast. Yes. <laughs> so when I hear you talk about the rise of the Protestant church, what what I'm thinking in my head is that these were kind of more traditional denominations, traditional mainline denominations that were setting up churches in Venezuela. Have you guys had in your Protestant history also a growth of the charismatic church as well?
1: The Pentecostal church, which we could say that it's one of the most important charismatic churches and had a lot of impact in Latin America. It's one of the most important churches in Venezuela. Actually, 60% of the evangelicals who are now in Venezuela are Pentecostal. So yes, there's a lot of influence from the charismatic movement, and of course, Baptist. And there's also these non-denominational churches that are also growing very fast in, in different cities like Caracas, Maracaibo, Valencia, or, or San Cristobal.
2: Okay, so you just named a bunch of cities in Venezuela, and I, I'm really curious and interested, when, we, when we're thinking about the Protestant movement, is this something that has primarily taken place in the cities then, as opposed to the countryside?
1: Well, they are everywhere especially in the low-income and worker-classes areas where Christianity had a major impact. With a recent political disaster happening there in which the middle class has disappeared, uh, well, we could say that Christians are everywhere, especially in the cities that I just mentioned to you, Caracas, which is the capital city, and also in Maracaibo or Valencia or San Cristobal, Barquisimeto. you know, there are many cities. So, as I said, they are mostly in the low-income and worker classes areas, but also in the big cities right now.
2: We know that when Hugo Chavez came to power, he received a lot of support of Venezuelans all throughout the country. Were Protestants generally supportive of him?
1: Well, you are right. Chavez had a lot of support when he was alive. His political changes uh, were well received by millions of people, especially those in the low-income and worker classes. And Christian Protestants, at least in the beginning of the revolution, they supported Chavez, at least most of them. And when Chavez died, the country was not doing well at all, and the crisis got worse when Maduro became the president and then a dictator. So he lost the support of the people who before loved Chavez, and and he lost the support of Christian movements. There are a few pastors and church leaders uh, supporting Maduro, of course, but they don't represent the Christian movement in the country who are really suffering the consequences of communism in Venezuela. Chavez and Maduro's relationship with Cuba and also with Haiti also opened the doors of the country to African and Cuban religions, which disappointed many Christian followers of the revolution because they openly start talking about these uh, African religions. And I I have no doubt that today's situation is generated not just by political forces and decisions, but also I believe that this is a spiritual battle against the evil forces. And, And Maduro lost a lot of support from the Christianity world in Venezuela just because they start talking openly about these other religions that, in my opinion, have brought death and destruction to our country as well, in the spirituality side of talking about this. Last year, I had the opportunity to visit the Dominican Republic. Actually, we, the Synod, uh, Missouri Synod organized a meeting with all the Venezuelan pastors in the Dominican Republic last year. Well in my opinion and this is my pastoral opinion and and I can give you a bunch of bible verses to strengthen what I'm saying right now but in my opinion this is the result that when an entire nation bow down before false gods you know you will see how the nation and the people is opening the doors for spiritual forces which are not uh, the spiritual forces of the real God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. So that's why I'm saying that I believe that our, our nation opened the doors for the devil and false religions to, to govern.
0: So you're talking about pagan uh, religions, African religions, uh, indigenous Caribbean religions, or are you talking about forms of government like communism?
1: No, no, I'm talking about false religions and, and pagans' religions from Africa who had a lot of influence in Haiti and Cuba and are now having some influence in Venezuela. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by the MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership Program at Wheaton College Graduate School, preparing leaders to serve the most vulnerable and the church globally.
0: I spoke with Kent Annan, Director of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College. Hi Kent, thanks for joining us. So what's the thing that surprises people about this
1: master's program?
0: So you're thinking about refugees, like, oh, let's just dive right into, hey, you know, how to make it better for people. But no, it's like realizing that some of the complexity of political issues, history, navigating UN agencies, and then helping across cultures. You come in with the energy of, you know, like just having heard a, a great preacher or something who says like, go out and do this and take it on. But then that energy can fade when you run into, you know, how hard things are. So then what we want to do is give you tools, tools of faith, tools of evidence-based practices. Tools of a network is really important, both of peers and then mentors out there. And then when you have all that, then you think, okay, I'm not just setting up to do one campaign and then burn out and move on to the next thing. Like I'm actually setting up for a vocation of
1: doing this. For more information, go to wheaton.edu HDL. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victims.
2: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
1: 6.30 a.m., we're we're in in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're going on. on.
2: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November— It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
1: When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is
0: weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home, but all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week,
2: Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it
0: yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
2: When these protests started happening, did you start to see Protestants organizing or churches organizing and going out on the streets?
1: Well, there are Christian movements and leaders whom you can see in the protest, We need to understand that the protests in Venezuela are general and are everywhere. And most of the people who are leading these protests, they do it because they are Venezuelan and they are concerned about the situation. People are dying. They spend entire days without electric power and clean water, violence, uh, lack of food and medication. It is terrible. And of course, you know, when people decide to go out. They don't do it as churches. They do it just as citizens of a country that's falling apart. There are some Christian pastors who have been involved in politics in in Venezuela. Actually, in the last election that Venezuela had, which I want to say that was not a legal election, uh, President Maduro canceled all the political parties in Venezuela but he led some people to participate in that election. And one of the candidates is a Christian evangelical pastor who ran against Maduro. Of course, he didn't have a lot of votes because the, the country didn't participate. I, I mean, most of the population didn't participate in that fake election that Maduro organized.
2: And you said it previous to Chavez as well. You saw different, different Protestants running for election for different types of political office.
1: Yes, yes. Always we had Christian mo- movements who are organized as political parties in Venezuela, even before Chavez came 20 years ago. So um, that, that was a common thing in, in our country. Uh, they never had a lot of power, I mean, influence, uh, because they were small political parties, but they have always been part of the political history of Venezuela.
2: From what you know about Protestant history in your country, have Protestants ever been persecuted for their faith?
1: Not right now. Maybe in the past, you saw eventual cases of persecution here and there. Uh, I'm talking about persecution against religious leaders because of their faith, okay? However, uh, churches, you know, they are suffering because of the lack of food, uh, medication, safety, and the economical crisis. But as because of their faith, we have never been persecuted, at least not in the last 50 years. You know, in the past, uh, way, way, way back when the Roman Catholic were the most important uh, church organization in Venezuela. Well, you can see some kind of persecution, but just made from, from political leaders who were Roman Catholic. Okay. But it was not a general thing.
2: Gotcha. I'm I'm curious right now, how are you seeing the Protestant church at work trying to help people who are suffering right now?
1: In the midst of a tragedy and this nightmare, it is amazing how we can see the hand of God working through people, especially through churches. The last couple of years, we have been sending food and money to churches in Venezuela. I'm talking about uh, our congregation here in Milwaukee, and I'm pretty sure that many others have been doing the same. Uh, many congregations in Venezuela are united in collecting food in order to make meals for people in need, and churches are receiving help from their sister congregations in the world, and that's how we have been helping out. Uh, look. I have no doubt that once this nightmare is finally over, uh, Venezuela will become the greatest mission field in Latin America, and with the support of the churches in America and the whole world. Missionaries, and I believe so, missionaries will go back there, uh, bringing the powerful good news of Jesus Christ to my country, and this is what I pray uh, every single day of my life. Because I'm pretty sure that we will be able to help them to to rebuild the country and the nation and restore democracy, freedom, and and when I say freedom, I'm talking about religious freedom as well. So they can keep proclaiming the gospel and serve their people with with not just with word, because the Bible encourages us to love with word and with actions. So I'm talking about both. I'm talking about bringing the word of God. And bringing good deeds for for people in need down in Venezuela.
2: Can you tell us some of the stories and things that you're hearing when you talk to other people in ministry in Venezuela? What are they telling you exactly about what it's like to pastor and to minister in this time?
1: This meeting that I was talking about a moment ago that we had in the Dominican Republic, it was last October, last November, I think. Of course, I grew up in the Lutheran Church of Venezuela, so I met these pastors. Uh, when I was a teenager, and then I worked with them when I became an adult and start working as a church leaders in in my congregation in Caracas. And what really hit me it was to to see how much weight they lost. That's one thing, because of of course you know they were sharing with me that they eat once a day, and they have not getting a good. It's not okay. We'll have a big meal. At least once every day. No, it's a poor meal every single day of their life. And this is the reality not just of the pastors, but also of the people who are coming to their churches. Um, The situation in Venezuela is critical. It's critical. There are no words to describe what it is to live there. Um, At least three million of Venezuelans have left the country in the last few years. This is over. 10% 10% of the entire population of a country. And, and we are talking about young people here. Uh, Venezuela is now a country of parents and grandparents. I have friends in churches over there who are telling me that their Sunday attendance has decreased because many of their members are now in Colombia, in the USA, South and Central America. It is, it is terrible. And I believe that the church in America must be ready to serve the over 250,000 Venezuelan people who are now living in the United States of America. That experience that you ex- live, uh, Morgan, when you went to Orlando and you start talking to the taxi driver uh, who was from Venezuela is something that I, I have seen in every single place where, that I visited in, in the United States. Uh, there are Venezuelans everywhere. I live in Wisconsin. And, and, and it is amazing the amount of people that I have met who are from Venezuela and for some reason are now living in, in Wisconsin, in the Midwest of the United States. Um, uh, and so it is, it is amazing the kind of stories that you, that you hear. People uh, fleeing from the country by foot, they are walking thousands and thousands of miles they walk day after day for ten days until they go to another country like Peru or Chile or Argentina, where they can find opportunities to to find a job and and a decent life. So it is it is terrible.
0: You mentioned earlier that there were in the past there have been uh, Protestant pastors who have run for office. Do Protestant evangelical preachers do they? Preach on the social situation, or do they do they speak out against the government from the pulpit, or is that something that would not be considered a good form in a in a Protestant church in Venezuela?
1: I told you a moment ago that there was not persecution. Okay, I mean we, we we are not having pastors being imprisoned or in jail because of their political opinions or ideas. Okay, this is this is true, but it doesn't mean that we can speak in public uh, whatever we want to say, okay? Because there are a lot of fears in in, in among Venezuelan people. Even the opposition leaders are afraid of going to jail because many of them are in jail right now. So, of course, they use the pulpit to bring a message of hope uh, to the Venezuelan people or to the people who are coming to their churches. Of course, they talk about the power of God. and uh, They keep telling people that God has not forsaken the Venezuelan country, but they are very careful when they start talking about the government, okay? They can talk about the crisis because it's obvious. They, they all are suffering the crisis, but they are very careful of not talking about the government or the president because they know that if they start doing that they could end in jail
2: you you mentioned obviously about this threat that they kind of face and the fact that many of them are only eating one meal a day i'm assuming many of them too have had family members leave when you talk to other christians who are trying to decide whether or not they should leave the country what types of questions are they asking themselves and how are they determining what god wants them to do in that situation
1: maybe Two or three or four years ago, when if we had this conversation at that point, you know, people w- will be in that big initial stage of start considering the idea of moving, okay, to another country. Right now, it is totally different. Right now, people don't even think about it. If they can, they will do it. And if they don't have money to, to buy an air ticket to go somewhere, they will do it by by foot or they will do it taking a bus. I had family who are now living in Chile and Argentina and also in Colombia who they didn't have money to pay for an air ticket. So they they took the bus and it took for them a few days to reach their destinations. And they did it without thinking about anything. Most of them, they leave everything behind their careers, their, you know, their properties. They just sell what they can sell. And they just take everything within and just go uh, to another country. Of course, there are a lot of concerns. Um, Last time that I went to Florida, I I saw Venezuelan people living in the parking lot of uh, supermarkets in some vans. And this is not something that I'm inventing. This is something that you can see in the news and and that you can see if you go there. You know, most of the Venezuelan communities are in South Florida. So if you go there, and I, and, and I hope that many people in South Florida will be listening to this, uh, this interview so they can be prepared. They can be prepared to share with, with the Venezuelan communities the gospel, the, the message of Jesus Christ, and not just that, but also they can be prepared to help them with anything. I met a church in Orlando where they are offering, they have a food pantry for Venezuelan communities. And they are teaching ESL, English, as second language classes too, and and trying to help the community, uh, the Venezuelan community, not just to start a new life here in America, but also to take care of their spirituality and emotional feelings.
2: It sounds like, too, what you're saying is that pretty much the people that are going to be staying in Venezuela are often the people that are the poorest or most likely to be children or old people.
1: Yes, people who had no chance to. To, to come here, you know. Uh, the Venezuelans who are here, they came uh flying, okay, in a plane, and to have money to pay for an air ticket, it means that you had some kind of privileges uh in, in Venezuela. But those who had nothing, they just left the country without nothing in their pockets, by food, and they just start walking away.
2: To 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 what extent are you seeing disagreement uh or discord among Venezuelan Protestant leaders about how to handle this particular situation?
1: One of the most terrible things that happened in Venezuela, it was the speech of the president. President Chavez divided the country between good and evil, between uh, socialist and capitalist, uh, between good and bad. and. And of course, this affected the church. Churches in Venezuela at some point were very divided because of their political opinions. However, as the situation got worse and worse and worse, uh, now I, what, I, what I can see is that they are more united. Uh, I mean, Christian churches are more united, even among different Christian denominations, okay, are more united in, in one goal help the people, serve the people, take care of the people. Even though this is a crisis in which the shepherd and the sheep both are suffering, uh, what I see is that people in, in churches are united in finding ways to serve people and help people. And I think that it says a lot because, you know, you, you start having more faith in, in human beings when you see that thing. People is putting aside their differences. And they are just start working together.
2: So for anyone who's listening to this podcast and wants to help the people that are affected, what would you ask them to do?
1: If you are a member of a congregation, talk to you know most of churches have mission organizations working. Uh, so just find out what's the organization of your congregation or, or your church affiliation and find out what they are doing for uh, the country of Venezuela. It is difficult, Morgan. Uh, it is not easy to send food and medication to Venezuela at this point. Uh, right now, the borders of the country are closed. And, and, and that was a way in which you can get food coming into to Venezuela. Because of this reality, it's not easy. I, I got a question from my, my church leaders uh, a few weeks ago, and we are trying to find ways to help. And I said, I think that what we can do is just getting organized because I'm pretty sure I have faith on that, that the situation in Venezuela will change at any moment. And, and I'm pretty sure that then we will be able to, to start sending help to Venezuela. There are many organizations who are helping Vene- uh, the situation in Venezuela as much as they can. But right now, that's important. The other thing to our dear listeners is that if you have ways to talk to, to your political leaders at the beginning of this interview, Morgan, you said that the administration of President Trump was very loud about this, uh, the situation in Venezuela. So talk to your congressmen. Talk to, the, to your leaders about, the, about Venezuela talk about the reality that's happening over there because we need the support not just of the administration of President Trump but also to people in Congress and 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 that's is very important we need the we need we need help Venezuela is a country that needs a lot of help
2: what are some very specific ways that you would like people to pray for things maybe yeah if you can just give some like very concrete examples or Um, churches that you think we should pray for in particular? Yeah, anyone that specifically needs our prayers, what would you recommend?
1: Well, Venezuela is experiencing a terrible darkness. And I think that they can see that when night comes and they have no electric power. So, but Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As I said, this is also a spiritual battle against the forces of evil. So pray for freedom and democracy. Pray for pastors and churches. Pray for food, for medication, for help. Pray for those who are leaving the country, 90% of the people who are living in poverty. Uh, And and we're talking about a country that 50 years ago was one of the richest countries of the world. Um, So pray for Venezuelan immigrants. Son of them could be closer to you than what you think, and and pray so we can see the light of Jesus shining again in Venezuela. Pray for that day in which the whole world will be united and willing to to send humanitarian help to Venezuela, and we can have a government willing to welcome such a help. So pray for Venezuela every Sunday morning when your pastor asks you for a, a prayer request, raise your hand and said and say, I want to pray for the country of Venezuela. That's great. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah, that was really wonderful to talk to you, Herman. Thank you so much for sharing with us about this. For anyone that has feedback or additional questions, you can send us an email at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. We are also available on Twitter. We're at ctpodcasts over there. Thank you to everyone who supports our show by being a subscriber to Christianity Today Magazine. We are very appreciative of all that you do. We are currently in the middle of our March issue, soon to come out April. Actually, April comes out in a couple days. But before we get into everything that's happening in April, Mark, I know there were some really interesting and thought-provoking pieces in this current month.
0: Yeah, I would just like to draw listeners' attention to one of our columnists, Andrew Wilson who uh, continues to offer really creative and thoughtful columns every other month. And in the March issue, he talks about uh, the title of the of The Clothes Make the Man, and he talks about how the biblical writers are, are, are uh, careful enough to note often the clothes that people are wearing. And it's not just because they are interested in fashion, <laughs> but usually the clothes represent something else. So he talks about... Goliath uh, being described as uh, having scaly armor that makes him that we think makes would we would imagine a serpent or even a dragon, and then we note that uh, that when David uh, crushes his head, it's and he is wearing a a linen a linen ephod. It's it's an allusion to the priesthood. So he goes through the entire uh, piece, just talking time and again how. The clothes are symbolic of God's salvation work all through the Bible as well, and it just adds another layer and dimension to our reading of Scripture. He just does such a marvelous job of doing that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, sometimes I feel like we just read the Bible and we like miss some like very obvious things. You know, like if you were from the cultural context, yeah, you would naturally just pick up on those things, and we kind of just like fly by them when it's like, no, it's really spelled the out.
0: Traditional uh, theological understanding is called plenary inspiration, which means every word of the Bible is inspired, not just the big ideas. And articles like this make you think, maybe that's really true.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And at least kind of point to like the intentionality that authors put in there. But again, we don't even know that's intentional sometimes.
0: Right. And we do believe the Bible is superintended by God in some mysterious ways. And that may be one way.
2: All right. So if you thought that the article sounded more interesting than what Mark and I said afterwards.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Actually, the Bible is even more interesting than the article.
2: That's also true. Okay, but I'm trying to plug. our So buy the Bible <laughs> and then
0: subscribe to CT to understand the Bible better.
2: <laughs> okay, and you can do that by going to orderct.com dot slash quick to listen. slash quick to listen. This column by Andrew Wilson, if you want to read it, is called "The Clothes Make the Man." So yeah, I recommend it. If you want to read it online or in print, this is how you're going to go about doing so. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and this is a chance for everyone to got, get to share something that brought them joy this past week.
0: You're up, Mark. Well, I got the chance to, as I said, drive to uh, Grand Rapids, but it's it wasn't just the event, which was another fundraising event for CT, which I always enjoy doing, meeting new people, but just being in a car, listening to a book, listening to another another novel by Uh, James Lee Burke, who writes, uh, who sets all his detective novels, his Dave Robichaux novels in uh, Louisiana, especially New Orleans, where my daughter and son-in-law and grandchild live. He's a fantastic uh, writer of description.
2: It's cool because you've been like traveling down to New Orleans a lot more. So you probably even get more out. Speaking of text, that you get more out of. No, no. When
0: he describes a scene in New Orleans uh, and I've been there, it's like, yeah. But even beyond that. But the point is, being in the car by myself, listening to a book, mm-hmm. decomposing from the pressure of the job, that was a precious moment. It was just nice to be alone with my thoughts, with my Lord, with my book, in my car.
2: And a good story. And it's a just, good like, story. So good. Yeah. All right, Mark. If people want to hear you, what you think about stuff.
0: Uh, subscribe to the Galley Report, which is uh, at www.christianitytoday slash report, spelled G-A-L-L-I, in which I Link to stories I find interesting and comment on them.
2: More exciting than you think. <laughs> All right. I think so. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just kind of understated. I would well, say Mark under- pick, Mark picks things that you probably have not come across. So if everyone was talking about it on Twitter, guess what? Mark is not on Twitter, so he's picking stuff that is interesting that you probably missed. And then there's good commentary, too. Just telling you you could sell a little bit more.
0: Okay, 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 okay.
2: All right, Edmond? Yes. What is your precious moment this week?
1: Well, I'm coming from one of the warmest places in Venezuela, and this has been a very tough winter. <laughs> exactly. And I'm... Lo siento, señor. <laughs> I don't complain a lot about weather in the Midwest because, you know, you get custom, but this has been a terrible winter. But finally, we are having a week, so I'm very happy about that. And I rejoice because I know that spring is coming, and this terrible winter is almost over. Praise the Lord.
2: So, do you like to do outdoor activities? I I like I like. Yeah, you go to Lake Michigan and hang out.
1: Yes, I like walking through by the lake, and and that's that's good. That's good. I love doing outdoor activities with my family and my wife, and that's great.
2: Yeah, and, and those are a little bit harder to do when it's seven degrees. Zero degrees. why
1: they don't play baseball in the winter.
2: Hey, in Milwaukee, they have a covered stadium, though.
1: Yeah, but it's it's frozen right now. (laughs) (laughs) Do you actually play baseball, Erwan? I used to. I used to play, and every summer I I play softball. You know, when you get my age, you start looking for alternatives. So uh, every every summer I I play softball with some friends from church.
2: So did you ever play against Cabrera or... Hernandez, did you ever play against them when you were in Venezuela?
1: No, no, no. I was not that professional. You know, only with friends from my neighborhood. We got together uh, every weekend to play baseball in, in a field close to my house. But, but just that, not professional. However, I went to high school uh, with Gerardo Parra, who was a very, who is a very popular Major League baseball player who i think is now with the giants let me tell you i think that he signed with the giants this year
2: yeah we'll see i i we did not re-sign our backup catcher so i think that's the position he's going for right it doesn't Parape isn't he a catcher
1: no he's an an outfielder
2: all right well our outfielder our outfield needs some help so we'll see what happens with him being there that is cool that you went to high school
1: with him though all right are you on twitter or on social media yes i don't use a lot of twitter uh, my, uh, but I'm on Facebook, Germán Novelli Oliveros, um, and also at Germán Novelli, spelled like German, G-E-R-M-A-N, Novelli, and Instagram, too.
2: Okay. Awesome. All right. My precious moment is something I haven't talked about in a while, but long-time listeners know, is that I had a circus show this weekend, and it was very short, but also very fun and made me... Sad that I don't get to perform more. What event? It was Trapeze again.
0: I've seen videos of this. I've never been personally invited to come, sadly Mark, to say.
2: personally invited. Oh, my gosh. I invited the whole It is incredible. Staff.
0: It is incredible to watch. Morgan is a woman of many talents, and that's just one of many.
2: Thank you, Mark. I will have another show in a couple months, and I will invite you to that show. And Herman, if you want to come too, since you're not that far away, everyone can come to my circus show this time. But yes, this one was fun. It was a student show. So I was one of eight people that was out there at the time. And we did Alice in Wonderland, psychedelic Alice in Wonderland. I told people that might be repetitive because all of Lewis Carroll's books are kind of weird. But it was fun to do nevertheless. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. As you probably already know, this podcast is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Or wherever else you like it in your podcast, you can find us there. Apple Podcasts is the best place to rate and review the show. Thank you everyone who does that. We truly appreciate it. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. Music is done by Sweeps. And we will see you all next week. Bye.